trends with a voice. I wish to welcome everyone to this new episode of my podcast, Trends with a Voice. In this episode, I have the pleasure to interview Corey Chiasson. She's a trans woman and an activist for more than 19 years. It's my pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I'll let you start by introducing yourself. Well, a little bit about myself. As you mentioned, I am a long-term advocate or ally for the 2SLGBTQ community. It's hard to imagine it's been almost two decades since I first undertook that role. It seems like time is going by so fast, but also so much change has happened. Um, I do remember the very first Pride celebrations in my community. I remember setting up the Gay-Straight Alliances in my school, as well as at other schools around our county, because they just didn't exist 19 years ago. I remember seeing same-sex marriage legalized in Canada. I know that just recently, we've had um, conversion therapy that has been decriminalized in Canada. You know, so much amazing astronomical change. So that role of an advocate, that's a big part of who I am, you know, taking this part of myself that is a transgender woman and transforming it into something that can be supportive for people in my community and can try to carve out something a little more positive, a little more strength-based, a little kinder for tomorrow. But I'm not just an advocate. I shouldn't say just, I don't want to minimize that we need lots of advocates. Um, But I do have many other roles that I fulfill as well. I'm the vice chair for the Sexual Health Center of Cumberland County. And I'm also an executive with In the Works, which is a recovery program for youth who are in recovery for their mental health or addiction challenges. I work with a number of other nonprofits around Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick, and they reach out to families, individuals who are marginalized, at risk, or on the fringes of society. It gives me a chance to connect with them, provide equitable supports, and also to advocate for their unique needs. This actually translates really well back into my day job too. Uh, Monday to Friday during the week, I'm an instructor with Eastern College, and I teach the child and youth care with addiction support worker program. Quite a mouthful, and I assure you the curriculum is just as thick and heavy. It's full of all kinds of content, but it's basically centered around how to support these marginalized people? What kind of counseling approaches do we need? Uh, What is it to take an equitable approach? How do we create diversity consciousness so that we can foster inclusive, safe spaces for people from diverse ethnic, cultural, sexual, socioeconomic, and other backgrounds, you know, to make sure everybody's included and everyone is represented. So basically, I guess to say, what has my journey been? Who am I? What do I do? I'm a helper. When I'm at work, when I'm an advocate, when I'm in the community, when I'm with my family, when I'm with my friends. The biggest thing I am is a helper. Wow, thank you for this amazing introduction. Before this interview, like a couple of months ago, I had the chance to meet you for the first time and I was so excited to be able to talk to you. Some people told me everything you did in the community and how special of a person you are. So it's a great privilege to have you here today. I want to start with our first subject, counter-protests that have been organized a couple of weeks ago on the 20th of September. I know you're there. My first question is like, how did you feel being at the counter-protests? Honestly, that protest and the counter-protests that were erupting on the 20th of, of September 
was probably one of the most heartbreaking things that I think I've ever witnessed and been a part of in almost 20 years of advocacy for the 2SLGBTQ community. To ensure that any of our listeners out there who might not be familiar with this protest and counter-protest, I'd, I'd like to just give a little bit of context too. Uh, for those who may not be aware, the Million March for Children was recently organized by a number of individuals who, if you are looking at their, their material and their propaganda, are quote-unquote looking to support the interests of people from diverse backgrounds to ensure the safety and the well-being of our children, end quote. Um, that's a rough paraphrase. Please don't expect it to be perfect, but it's a pretty accurate summation of a lot of their propaganda. If you stop and look underneath the mandates and underneath the flashy pictures of Canadian flags and stick families holding hands, you start recognizing what their actual goals are, which are to remove all of the SOGI curriculum from schools, which is our sexual orientation and gender identity curriculum. This provides us age-appropriate curriculum outlines, as well as materials and guides for educators in our public school system to be ensuring that children are educated. What is gender identity? What is gender expression? What is sexual orientation? What is consent? And how do we keep ourselves safe in today's world? It's not pornographic material. It's not age inappropriate. It's nothing that's graphic or traumatizing or too outside of the box. It's largely inclusive, holistic education that's designed to help people better understand themselves and other youth and individuals in their community. It's designed to help people keep themselves safe, informed, and also, again, able to function in our society. So again, their their main mandate is to remove this. They don't want to see any of these things being taught within our schools. And that removes visibility for 2SLGBTQ youth. And it also removes important education for them and tools for their allies to be able to understand them. Further mandates from this group are looking at removing gender-neutral locker rooms and washrooms and ensuring that these things go back to a binary gender framework. And they are also looking at um, at uh, reinforcing this whole 713 type of policy, right? It's all about parental rights, and it's minimizing children's rights. They don't believe that youth or people under the age of 18 should be allowed to use preferred pronouns and preferred names in schools. They want to see those practices by the wayside. And again, see it leaned in exclusively to parental rights and a removal of all of those components. So on September 20th, there was an event which this Million March for Children organization, well, they arranged. And it was a nationwide event where they encouraged supporters to pull their children from school and take them to attend rallies. At these rallies all across the country, these children with their parents were brought out with signs and they marched around schools. They drew attention to their interests And a lot of propaganda was shared to make it seem like it was a safe, inclusive, child-friendly message when, in actuality, we just unpacked that this is actually putting a number of youth at risk, specifically the 2SLGBTQ youth within our community. Now, members of the 2SLGBTQ community, as well as allied organizations, 
you know, like local pride organizations, a number of united churches that have affirming ministries and others, they showed up to these these protests around Canada as counter-protesters to try to stand up for the rights of marginalized youth. A number of organizations, including the Moncton-based ones that I attended, encouraged people not to bring their children because we were standing up as allies and advocates for them, but it wasn't necessarily appropriate to bring them to a place where there could be violence. Violence. There could be, you know, very, very polarized opinions from different ends of, uh, of, well, different social groups being voiced in a tense type of situation. And again, that's a very different approach than the Million March for Children was doing. So that brings us to September 20th. And that brings us to, of course, the Moncton chapter of September 20th. Members of River of Pride, as well as other community organizations, and just people who cared showed up downtown to our town hall on Main Street. Later on in the day, they moved from there up to the Centennial Park off of St. George Boulevard. At these different locations, the protesters from the Million March for Children rallied together with signs. They said things like, uh, hands off our children, stay away from our children, our kids, our rules, um, and other sorts of phrases that basically suggested that members of the 2SLGBTQ community and all of these education mandates were, again, working against their parental rights. By comparison, there were also counter-protesters there with rainbow flags and other forms of supportive paraphernalia to show that these gender identities do exist. Removing them from curriculum doesn't erase them from society. It just takes away the tools we need to be able to see and understand and support them. What I found most interesting and also most disturbing was the approach that was taken. I've been at protests before. And I've been at even some that, you know, you have opposing members showing up, you know, you're rallying for one thing and people from the other side show up. I've been there. But what made this unique was the way that protesters were so aggressively approaching the counter protesters. Now, just to be very clear with everybody, I was standing with the counter protesters members of the 2SLGBTQ community. That meant people who were gay, transgender, non-binary, and a number of other identities were standing all around me. And we were a much smaller group of people than the group of protesters who were trying to remove these rights and remove these supports. Right away, that made it scary because we were in the minority and it was very, very obvious. Secondarily, A lot of messages were being yelled, and they were being screamed, and it was also very evident that the woman who was organizing and leading the event did not have full control, or even close to it, of the people who were attending. At one point, the protesters were preparing to leave the Centennial Park area to do a march out and around the neighboring school. They were then going to be returning back to this area. Now, the leader of this organization, who was a blonde-haired lady with a microphone up at the front, was encouraging people not to chant, we need to be quiet and we need to be respectful, you know, we're going around the school. And as she was trying to provide this guidance to her crowd, they were still chanting. There was very little control. It was much more of that mob mentality with different pockets and different groups that made up collectively this group that together was propagating homophobia and transphobia. When they came back from their march, this is where things got, for me, 
the scariest. There were a number of children that were really riled up, and their parents would have them up on their shoulders or standing in front of them, and they were cheering and they were chanting along together, hateful, homophobic, and transphobic slurs. They were pointing at us. They were giving us thumbs down and and other forms of hand gestures, sticking their tongues out at us and making different forms of lewd gestures. I even had a man who came up to me with a megaphone, only about maybe three feet away from me, and he screamed through the megaphone at me that I was a man and that men were born with penises and that women were born as women and there are no transgender people. I'm a man and I'm a pervert. He was yelling this at me in a megaphone not even three feet away from me with an angry mob of people behind him who are also chanting things that line up with those ideologies. And what made it even more heartbreaking is the fact that he was surrounded by his children and that those small children were imitating and mimicking the hatred that this father was portraying. They were echoing the same phrases he was saying. They were doing the same things he was doing. And of course, the more the children saw these things, the more they started continuing it along. By the time I left, some of the children were actually branching off from their parents. They were circling around members of the 2SLGBTQ community. They were trying to take away signs. They were trying to rip pride flags out of people's hands. I watched a small girl who could not have been more than seven or eight years old rip a pride flag out of somebody's hand, throw it on the ground, and stomp on it. And when a member of the counter-protesters tried to usher her back over towards the protesters because of how aggressive she was being, her father got defensive, got up in the face of the counter-protesters, started accusing us of, quote-unquote, touching his children and to leave them alone, when in reality it was his children that were starting the assault, and they were doing it because of the aggression he was showing. That's what made this day so, so scary. Standing between these two groups, I couldn't help but hear how both groups had a lot of similarities, though. The protesters were saying, no pornography for our children. Children deserve not to be sexualized. Children deserve to be respected. Parental rights deserve to be respected. And quite honestly, I agree with all of those statements. And so do most of the members of the 2SLGBTQ community, as far as I'm aware. A number of people that were on my side of that picket, I know they voiced to me that they did. But at the same time, there were these different viewpoints on what gender is, what sexuality is, what is the language we're using, what are we actually being educated on? And unfortunately, those different ignorances, those different perspectives, those different lived experiences, they took us to a place of having the same value and not even being able to see it. Unfortunately, those protesters didn't recognize that members of the 2SLGBTQ community are not looking to indoctrinate everybody. We're not trying, um, you know, to, to make them out to be anything. We're not putting things in people's heads. What we are trying to do is give them the tools to be successful in today's day and age. The 2021 census data helps us to make visible a previously invisible population by identifying the gender identities of Canadian citizens by different generations, different geographies. We know diversity is increasing, and we know that means that we need education 
We need supports. We need to know how to communicate with one another. So I guess kind of bringing all of that to a bit of a head around the end of this question, uh, you know, what happened on the 20th? What did I see? What am I feeling? What I saw were a lot of people who really cared about children. What I also saw were a lot of people that want to keep others safe, people they view to be at risk, whether they're kids or members of the 2SLGBTQ community. But sadly, what I also saw were a lot of people who were voicing their own opinions and not able to listen to those of one another. I saw people who were getting angry and defensive and putting up more barriers between one another when they could be sitting around at a table, finding their common grounds, understanding the differences between them, and finding a way to make that work. I think walking away from it, it first left me feeling defeated. Like all this progress we had made, the legalization of same-sex marriage, the decriminalization of conversion therapy, you know, it had all been done for what? You know, when we see this amount of hate, when we see this amount of, of risk being put out there for youth. But over time, it caused me to have a little bit more hope. After the rally, I went to church on Sunday, and I belong to an affirming ministry as part of the United Church. And the outpour of love, support, compassion, empathy, the drive to be more active advocates and allies, it was there because of what was seen and witnessed and experienced at those counter-protests and those protests. There wasn't a drive to judge people, but rather a drive to love even harder, those who are being oppressed as well as those who are oppressing, so that we can try to connect better, we can try to understand one another, and we can try to come back from these steps backwards into darkness. Thank you for this. I don't think there's anyone that could have described what happened on September 20th better than you. And I'm so sad you had to go through all of that. No one should live that, live that hate right in their face. So we are all human after all. And whatever someone can think about anything, it should never give an argument to someone to hurt another human. We all deserve to be loved. And that's something that people forget in what is going on right now with this anti-trans movement. I have a couple of questions following everything you said. First, there's people from the anti-trans movement that say that their protests are peaceful. I think it's pretty easy to know from what you said that I don't see any peaceful protests in the anti-trans movement on that day. No, unfortunately, this Million March for Children did not seem like a peaceful uh, initiative at all. It did not seem like something that was child-friendly or should be encouraged to have children attend. From where I stood, it seemed dangerous. You know, the college that I teach at is on St. George Boulevard, and the protest, as I mentioned, in Moncton moved from Town Hall up to Centennial Park, located on St. George Boulevard, just down the street from my workplace. I wondered back and forth, I hummed and hawed, should I go to this? As a prominent member of the transgender community who teaches, who works in child and youth care, who is a trans woman, who's been doing this for 19 years, advocating and educating... Is it safe for me to be there? Or am I putting my life in danger? Now, I chose to go. 
because at the end of the day, there were going to be a block down the street anyway. So I might as well go be a part of it, choose to be there instead of being left in the fringes and feeling afraid and wondering what would happen if I go, what would happen if I didn't. But when I went, I felt fear. I felt scared. I felt intimidated. I felt proud and I felt courageous too of myself and the members of our community that did show up. But I also felt very sad and I felt a lot of empathy for the people who were too scared to go. I understood why. You know, when six and eight-year-olds are ripping pride flags and signs out of people's hands and stomping them on the floor, when grown men are coaching their small children to yell and scream profanities and they're getting in the faces of people, that's, that's not a peaceful protest. That's a propagation of hate. The thing that I found interesting about a lot of the Million March for Children is that it uses a lot of misinformation to create a lot of propaganda. A number of people from this protesting group were informing me of a number of conspiracy theories, which if you look for a credible source, you just, you'll discover they just don't exist. I had one person who articulated to me that uh, all of this SOGI curriculum was apparently a part of a government conspiracy. They're using the water and the COVID vaccines and other forms of forced regulated thing to create more trans people. And that's why the education is geared this way. And it's all this big conspiracy theory. And of course, that's not true. There is no gay agenda to indoctrinate people that's fueled by an international agency with medical this, this, and it's just not happening. But the fact is somebody saw something or somebody made something or somebody found some piece of fake news and it has been propagated and shared and spread around. And it's really created a very hateful and ignorant perspective for the particular person I'm thinking of who spoke to me at this event, as well as many other people that they're connected to that went to that event for the same reason. I also saw on their website that they had created propaganda, different posters, letters you could send to the school administration to pull your children out of school for the day for this event, all kinds of tools for people to be using. And again, the language sounds like it is inclusive and supportive. I had three people that I spoke to that by the time we were done a conversation, they decided to leave their protest instead of going on the march because they didn't realize how much they didn't really understand. They thought they were there to support inclusion and to support children and to make sure people were safe. And when I started talking to them about the impacts of removing those curriculums, removing those facilities, and what was actually going on, they had no idea. The organizers of that protest were pulling people from all different walks of life into this event under this guise of protecting and loving children, with very little information about what was actually going on and what their true goals and mandates were. They're having them sign petitions. They're trying to enact change. And they're doing so by gaslighting people. One of their big things is to leave my children alone. You know, we saw that being chanted at us. We saw that on their signs. But the interesting thing is, none of us brought children to that rally. And all of them did. And many of those children were carrying signs that say, I belong to my parents. 
The definition of indoctrination is giving people only one outlook and basically controlling them along that singular path by causing them to believe that it is the only option and it is the only truth. Treating your children like property, manipulating them into echoing hateful acts that they don't truly understand, that is indoctrination. So again, what's the best word to describe what we're seeing? Gaslighting. It was absolutely stomach-wrenching, and it's really a statement on how dangerous it is when we start turning a blind eye to the unique needs of marginalized people. We've socially constructed that there is a need to support to SLGBTQ people over the last several decades, but I often fear that as we make progress, we sometimes let our guard get down. We can't stop having the conversations. We can't stop having pride celebrations. We can't stop educating people. Because if we take a moment to pause for too long, those rights we have worked so hard to create could disappear. Or they could change, just like the 713 policy did right under our own noses here in New Brunswick. Just want to add a couple of things before we go to the policy 713. First, some people that are listening to the podcast might laugh at some of the conspiracy theories you said that these people believe. But the sad thing is there are some people that strongly believe them. Whatever the way they decide to present their arguments, if it's the right of the children, if it is leave the children alone, the parental right, at the core, it's all transphobia. There's no other way to say it. I think all advocates will be able to debate on where should we put more money for the community, for example. That's debatable. But human rights, being respected, being able to come out at school, being able to protest safely, Those are human rights. And from what you said and what I've heard from multiple people at at the protests, that right of protesting safely was not there. No one enforced it. It was law enforcement, no one, the city, no one. We were alone. And like you said about the part that it's scary to go to protest myself, I feel too scared to go protest right now. There's a protest coming up on... October, I think, 21. And I'm not sure that I'm going to go because I don't want to face that kind of aid in person. For me and for a lot of people of the queer community, we have been bullied when we were young. Some of us altered life and it just brings so much bad memories and trauma that it just become a question of protecting our mental health. And that's why more than ever, we need allies to stand up and be there at these protests because we cannot do this alone. I don't know if you want to add something before we go at the next subject or... Oh, no, I'm excited for the next subject (laughs) because it's it's not really a totally separate subject. Um, Everything that we're talking about here with trans rights and the SOGI curriculum and what's going on with, uh, you know, the Million March for Children's mandates and goals, it really largely reflects some of this topic around the 713, what that policy is and what it means for us here in New Brunswick. Perfect. So we'll go to policy 713. Last spring, 
our government of New Brunswick decided to do some changes to policy 713. Don't know if you could talk a little bit more about these changes. Certainly. So for those who don't know, the 713 or 713 policy in New Brunswick is a relatively new one. It's a part of our school districts, and it gives some guidelines for what we should be expecting as far as standards for gender-neutral uh, washrooms, as far as being able to use preferred uh, pronouns or names, specifically those that may not align with given names or an individual's sex identification at birth. And just other forms of resources and supports available to 2SLGBTQ youth that might be attending elementary, middle, or high school in our public school systems. So the 713 policy was actually a huge groundbreaking thing. It was, it was a wonderful thing. However, we've had some major challenges, unfortunately, due to the administration under Blaine Higgs here in New Brunswick. Just recently in the spring, Blaine Higgs made some amendments to the 713 policy. Now, not all of these amendments were bad. I'd like to start by saying that. It did remove some of the engendered expectations for recreation and extracurricular activities. So, you know, some of that language change was actually really good. Um, we're no longer just considering that we need gender-neutral bathrooms. We're also considering that we need some gender-neutral locker and other sort of facilities as well. So, Some of the amendments were positive, but it also came with one very large and very alarming amendment, which infringes upon the rights of children in Canada. That amendment, under Blaine Higgs's direction, states that children under the age of 16 require parental consent for the school to be able to use those preferred names and pronouns in formal settings like classrooms, for example. They need to use the ones that have been given at birth, and if the person does not have consent from their parent and they are under 16, then that will continue to move forward. The justification for this from the Higgs government is that they're looking out to protect the rights of parents. From their perspective, children should not be coming out at school having names and pronouns used in a public format, you know, out around all kinds of people when the parents are not informed of that. You know, this, it's not like these are private one-on-one -on -one conversations. We're talking about public settings in front of multiple people, on a registry. And is it right? Is it fair for the child to be able to do all of this and change all of this and to have parents 100% totally out of the loop? Now, this is where, again, we have two groups on different opinions, and they share something in common. People who support this amendment and people who don't, I've come to learn, all respect the rights of parents. One of the challenges we have is that we're not seeing how this is not simply just about parental rights and the rights for parents to be informed. There are many youth out there who may not come out to their parents in fear of retaliation. Not every parent's cultural background or personal belief system allows them to be supportive of the 2SLGBTQ community. And some of our youth in today's day and age are still afraid to come out to their parents, that they might be rejected, that there could be negative consequences. They could even maybe be kicked out of their home. Why are youth homeless? It's different reasons than adults. Adults are expected to maintain an income and pay the bills and you're responsible, but youth are dependent. So what makes it impossible to be at home? Not being accepted, 
not being supported, not being treated as though you're loved. And this policy takes children that might be in that boat and it puts them at risk because now they don't have the ability to go to school and be treated with respect to at least get a few hours every day where they're getting that love and they're getting that respect that they're not able to get at home. We're removing that. We're causing people to be traumatized by forcing them to use pronouns and names that do not align with them. It's not enough to have a policy that directs to the appropriate professional and make a plan to talk to parents. Those are great general ideas. Yeah, we should talk to social workers and guidance counselors and the nurse down in the health center. Let's talk to all the appropriate people. And if we can support the youth with talking to their parents, yes, we absolutely should. Because the rights of the parents to be informed, I agree, so important. But should the right of those parents come before the rights of at-risk and marginalized youth? The United Nations created a list of rights, a declaration of the rights of children. It was done in a convention decades ago. And this document features 42 articles, I believe it is, that outline the rights of children. And then there's an additional several more that talk about how international agencies like UNICEF, for example, are meant to also lobby and become involved in protecting those rights. The Convention of the Rights of the Child is the most ratified document in the world as far as being adopted into legal frameworks in different countries. Here in Canada, it was ratified into our legislature, which means it is a part of our law. If we break down those articles that identify the specific, unique, and special rights of children, we see, and this is applicable to everybody under the age of 18, they all have a right to a name. They all have a right to an identity. They all have a right to safety. They all have a right to privacy. They all have a right to equitable education that meets their needs. Just naming off those articles, how many of them were negated for those 2SLGBTQ community members, those 2SLGBTQ youth? How many of them lost those rights when we imposed this 713 revision and we said, you have to have parental consent? to use your own name, to be safe at school, to have that identity, to receive an education that's directed towards you and your needs. We took all those rights away. The most interesting thing about the fact that we did this is the fact that we recognize that we did this. Premier Blaine Higgs is the one who made these adjustments, and they've been put out there, and it has been amended. It's, it's out there. But Kelly Lamrock, the child and youth care advocate for New Brunswick, came up with a, I think it was 100 pages or more. It was a full detailed report outlining how these policy changes infringe the rights of children within our legal framework here in Canada. He mentioned these things. And again, this is the child and youth care advocate, Kelly Lamrock, for the province of New Brunswick, identifying that rights and laws are being infringed upon and that our government and our school districts here in New Brunswick are actually opening themselves up to liability for lawsuits, infringements of rights. Mr. Higgs appreciates the feedback, and that will be taken into consideration. But no change is being made. Is that enough? Is that what we elected our officials to do? 
to remove the rights of our children, to increase the risk level of those who are already marginalized within our society, to not be able to see the unique lived experiences of the increasingly diverse population within our province and country. I don't know about you, but I exercise my right to vote because I'm looking to protect those things. I want to protect the rights of children. I don't want to see them taken away. I want to see infrastructure supports and resources generated and provided for marginalized people. Let's reduce the gap between the wealthy and the poor, the healthy and the sick. But from where I'm sitting, it seems like the votes we've put in to put this gentleman into office have actually been working against us. And so I guess my question to our audience and our viewers out there is, where do you see yourself in this picture? As either a member of the 2SLGBTQ community, as a parent, as an ally or an advocate for a friend, a child, a loved one that's a member of this community, how can you become involved? We mentioned earlier that going to those rallies is not for everyone. It doesn't make everybody feel safe, and it's not for everybody to do. Some people will, and we need those people to be courageous and to stand up. But there's other things we can do as well. We can be informed and active voters. We can be lobbyists. We can hold people accountable. We can become educated and informed with credible sources. And we can share that information so that we can socially reconstruct what is actually going on here in these issues. And by doing that and working together, by trying to love just a little bit more, I think that we can actually get back to that place of progress instead of remaining in a place where we are slipping backwards slowly, one day at a time. So to really boil down, you know, what is this 713 policy and why do we need to address it? This policy is meant to be a help and a support, but it is actually infringing upon the rights of child. In addition to that, it is what is igniting this fire of hatred across our country. The 713 policy is a big fueling agent for the Million March for Children. After New Brunswick implemented these revisions, Saskatchewan followed suit not very long afterwards. When resistance was met from other people within the province of Saskatchewan, their premier used the notwithstanding clause to force it to stay in place. New Brunswick is currently risking the same type of issue happening. This means that in less than half a year, we have two provinces that have removed and infringed the rights of children. That's a problem. It means that while that is also happening, we are fueling riots and counter-riots. We're pulling children out of schools. We're teaching them to hate. And what should we be doing? We should be teaching them to love. We should be teaching them to have compassion. We should be teaching them to appreciate the diversity that this world has offered us. I've come to understand that we all may have very different values and beliefs, how we feel we should raise our children, how we feel the world is structured. Not everybody believes in sexual orientation and gender identity as we frame it here in North America. But these ideas of teaching it in schools and providing safe spaces and inclusive spaces is not an attempt to change those values and beliefs and indoctrinate people into our way of thinking. 
Again, it's just a way of giving people tools so that they can see us too. They can appreciate us too. And of course, in return, we want to see and respect and appreciate them as well. I would like to dig deeper in one of the core issues we have seen with Policy 713 that have been pushed by the anti-trans movement is the notion of parental consent. There is no one that wants to hide information from parents. But what I know from my coming out experience and I know from other trans person, doing a coming out as trans is super hard. And everyone has their own journey to get there. When you do your coming out, the first person you do your coming out to, it's going to be persons that you're more comfortable with. And when you're younger, usually it's your friends. You need to be able to do your coming out at your own rhythm. And when you're ready, if you feel safe at home, do it at home. Yes, there are some people that will not be safe at home doing their coming out. But there's also people that need to have time. They need to be ready to do it to their parents. Even if they know their parents probably will be accepting. If there's only 1% chance that they'll be rejected, they might still not feel comfortable. So we're not only talking about, I would say, extreme, like parents that are super transphobic. We were talking about just child teenagers that need time to process everything, to explore their gender identity, to come out to people they trust more. And then when they're ready, they'll talk about it to their parents. I'm inclined to agree with that. You know, especially in adolescent years, the peer group becomes so important to us. It's actually a big part of our development and the development of our self-esteem, our self-efficacy, our, our just self-awareness at large. So, I mean, it's not uncommon for teenagers and youth to talk about certain topics with their friends and certain topics with their family members. And so what you're saying is really resonating with me because there are a number of youth that might kind of test that out or try that out with their peer group who they feel like they have a lot in common. And that can help them build confidence to be able to then approach people like teachers or maybe parents or maybe other members of the community. So you're right. It's it's not just about the external It's about respecting the need for everyone to have a coming out path that is in line with their own timetable, right? It's not our schedule for you coming out. Um, and again, also giving the framework for people to be able to be allies, because it's not just about people within the community. It's also about empowering others to be able to see and support them, to be able to celebrate those differences instead of um, meet them with judgments. The other thing that really speaks to me when we, we kind of hone in on consent is how biased we tend to get around this idea of needing to have our parents' consent to be able to do this. When I look at the rights of children, again, applicable to every child in Canada, not just children over the age of 16, they have the right to privacy. So what am I really asking for consent for? To use a name? to address you a certain way, to be respectful to you? Why am I socially constructing this notion of getting consent from a parent around being able to speak to you and building that up to be an infringement of their right over 
over this other side of it, right? The right that the child has by our laws for privacy, for safety, for respect, to have a name, to have an identity. And so that's a big thing for me when I think about this. I'm also reminded of the fact that our goal is to empower children and youth towards their next step in life. You know, when we think about child and youth care practice, we are encouraged to start involving children with providing consent around the ages of 12, give or take. It's not to say they can provide consent on their own at age 12, but we should be starting to teach them about it, involving them in it, having conversations about it, because when they are 16, they do have rights and abilities to provide their own consent for different things. And they don't just wake up on their 16th birthday having magically adopted that skill. They adopt it over time from being taught, guided, and from learning. So we're meant to start involving them on having those dialogues and providing consent early. At 16, they're able to start taking on some of those responsibilities. And then by the time they're 18, they are independent individuals as far as society is concerned. And at 19, they can even buy regulated substances across the country. Isn't that wonderful? So pulling that all back, what does that mean? Again, why are we now focusing on removing that idea of empowering youth to articulate their needs, empowering them to speak up for their own needs. In every other framework, we talk about building those rights, building the child's ability to provide consent and be informed and take active, autonomous courses of action as they get to those increasingly independent stages of life. Yet in this one realm, we're constructing it differently. And to me, that speaks to unconscious bias, and maybe even conscious bias as well. It speaks to homophobia. It speaks to transphobia. It speaks to how all of those things are twisting and distorting the way that we're seeing this particular situation. And the result of that is that we're not really acting in the best interest of the child. That's what we're always supposed to be doing. The choices that adults make around legislature, laws, childcare, education, so on and so forth. They affect children. And again, children are not the ones that get to make those choices. So when we make those decisions, we need to be thinking about how they impact those people. And from what I'm seeing from the Higgs government and, and these revisions, I'm seeing that we're not listening to those voices. And that's a really big, big problem. Another important point about all these anti-trans measures is they affect everyone, not just trans people. We talk about, for example, names, the usage of preferred name in school. We know a lot of people, when they're younger, they want to be called with nicknames. Even adults, too. And we have seen multiple states in the U.S. banning the use of nickname in schools for everyone. So now, childs need parental consent to use a nickname at school. So... It affects everyone, these types of laws. It's going the same thing if we decide to control who can go to the bathroom. You cannot do the difference between a trans woman and a woman in a bathroom. It's not going to work. These anti-trans laws affect everyone, and that's why they affect rights of everyone. That's why we need to take action and stop them. There's another aspect of the policy 713 of the changes the government did that we don't talk as much. And for me, it's really something that's really worrying me is the changes they did about 
removing some provision along gender identity for activities in school. And that touches sports. So now there's no more protection for trans girls, for example, to be able to do sports in a girls' team. These are gone. When we, you see a government that tells you, for example, eggs, has been saying that trans women don't have any right to be in women's sports, it really gets you worried that we'll see trans people not have any more access in sports, in school, where sports is super important to learn some great values about teamwork, about being able to push yourself through your limits. I know for me, I played hockey. I did a bunch of sports when I was younger. And that is something that was really important for me. Yes, I had some bullying in some sports, but I learned a lot about myself in sports. And we need kids to be able to do sports and participate in teen aligned with their gender identity. I have different thoughts on that one because I think there are really good things about that change, but I think that we fell short on what that change looks like. By removing that stipulation, we've actually opened up some doors for people. Let's say we were looking at a more rural school and they only had a boys basketball team. Well, does the removal of that provision not now mean that girls could also join the basketball team? Because you don't have to just do things that are in line with your gender identity, right? So that boys-only team that we've had before, is it only going to be for boys anymore? So part of it, I think, is beautiful because it could be opening doors to make some of our sports more inclusive places and actually encourage more youth to come out there. However, I think where the risk is is that just changing a couple of words does not usually provide a comprehensive enough plan to ensure that we actually have continuity of the way we're approaching it. And we need to have continuity if we want to make sure that we have an equitable, safe, proper kind of approach. So that's the the positive way that I interpret it. And if other people out there, if other teachers, principals, educators, uh, educational assistants, if everybody else around is interpreting it that way too, it could be a great thing. But like you said, what about people who might have a different opinion? Again, some politicians out there uh, have some vocal opinions and they've made them known that they don't necessarily agree with where people from the trans community might fit into different gendered sports. By removing that line, is it now maybe making it possible that people could also try to box us in or exclude us? And maybe there could be some rooms for problems. And again, that's where I think the idea behind it, there could be such a good spirit behind it. But what we need is something more comprehensive. Same idea with children under the age of 16 need consent. All right. In general, that's a nice idea because parents should have the right to be informed. But what about people who aren't comfortable to talk to their parents yet? What about people who need the support of their friends or the school in order to be able to talk to their parents? You know, is it right to just rush them along that path or should we be letting them take their own path? What about people who are not safe coming out to their parents? Is it right that that's the only option that we have to support them with? So it's fine to say that we want to honor parents' rights and say that we need consent, but it's not fine to just end there. We need to have provisions in place. What happens if the youth says it's not safe to reach out to the parent? How do we then respond to them? You know, how do we give them the support so that they're not at risk? So I think both sides of this are two sides of the same coin, you know, the same problem, right? These amendments were made 
and the CYC advocate was not consulted. Child and youth cares uh, workers were not consulted. Educators, people from from principals and, and teachers, not enough people were consulted. Parents and youth from the 2SLGBTQ community were not consulted. And that's a big problem because, again, changing a couple of words doesn't give us the comprehensive solution we need. Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems I see is that not all of our politicians and not all of our leaders are willing to actually hear both sides of the stories to be able to make those comprehensive plans that actually meet the needs of our citizens. For example, on September 20th, when Mr. Higgs left the building in Fredericton, he stopped to greet the protesters from the Million March for Children. And when somebody asked if he was going to stop over to say hello and greet the counter-protesters from the 2SLGBTQ community, he stated that he was not going to because they clearly did not support the right of parents and he didn't have anything to talk to them about. And he left. How can he support the needs of anybody in that community if he's not willing to even talk to them? If he's already made a prejudgment on them that they must think and believe this, Earlier in the podcast, didn't I tell you that many people from our community agree that the rights of parents should be respected? We just don't think that they should be respected at the expense of high-risk youth. Now, according to Mr. Higgs, we don't support any parental rights. Those two things just don't equate. And the reason why he doesn't see that, or the reason why he doesn't say that, is because he's not taking the time to talk to us and he's not taking the time to listen to us. Conversations need to be had. You know, people need to talk. They need to hear one another so that compromises and solutions that are equitable and holistic can be found. Not everybody needs a size 10 pair of Nikes. We have different sized feet. We have different styles. We have different needs. And some people don't have two feet Some people don't have any feet at all. And that's the difference between equity and equality. Right now, I see a really big equality approach where we need to have something that's fair for at least what we see from our own group's ideal as fair. But the reality is, like I said, not everyone needs the same thing. We need that equity approach. Let's stop giving everyone a pair of size 10 Nikes and let's start giving them what they need. If I add on that, Like you said, the lack of comprehensive plan. You said when you remove the gender entity clause in the scholar activities, but you don't have a plan to make sure sports are inclusive, it just leaves a big hole to be exploited by those wanting to remove rights from the trans community. And it's the same thing when there's some good change. For example, the gender neutral locker rooms. I'm a big advocate for gender-neutral locker room and washroom because they're better for everyone. I have a good 10 minutes on one of my last episodes talking about gender-neutral bathrooms and locker rooms. But a big problem is, where's the financing for this? Where are the resources? Same thing with education. They remove the financing from pride in education. So even if you add one good measure, the lack of plan makes it like, Nothing will happen because in the school, will you see more gender-neutral washroom or bathroom? They need the money to build them. I think that's part of where we definitely have gaps. Like you said, there's not a comprehensive plan. Lots of great ideas. Even with 
the 713 policy mentioning that we should have gender neutral locker rooms and washrooms and different facilities. Like we said, parts of it are really great. But where is the funding? Where is the budget? You know, and and again, there's other problems beyond it, because it's not just about the money either. It's about the details and the nitty gritty parts that are just not mapped out. And so therefore, there will not be consistency. I think that's one of the hardest parts about it. We could have one school where a lot of professionals and a lot of people are doing incredible things for the youth, thanks to the way that they are seeing this policy and articulating it and and they're being supported by their administration. But all it really takes is one administrator or a handful of, of other people in the works. And like you said, this can be manipulated or twisted or turned into a really big hole that people could be falling through the cracks. When you were talking about listening to people from the community, we also need to listen to experts, experts that took 10 years to write the original version of Policy 713. That was not a perfect policy, but was a good step forward. And if all that time that the government took to do a revision of the policy would have been spent on putting more gender-neutral bathrooms, putting more money into education, it would have been a lot better than what we have seen since April. I'm inclined to agree. My humorous side says maybe not, though, because did they really spend much time on 713 revisions if this is the garbage we were left with? <laughs> so just being a little funny and facetious as we get close to the end. <laughs> we're already to our last subject, talking about how can we move forward? How can we bring to a stop the current climate of transphobia? and really help the trans community and make our life better? Well, there's a lot of things we can do, but I think it starts with realizing that it will not just be an uphill journey to better things. We are going to ebb and flow. There are going to be times that things are getting better and improving, and there's going to be times when we have these little step backs like we're experiencing right now. To get through those setbacks, we have to band together and we need to create strong partnerships and allies within the community and between the community and society at large. We need to be able to bring people in to work with us. We also need to be able to keep the dialogue going. If we don't have those partnerships, if we don't have that continued conversation, the social construction of this as an issue starts to die out and it starts to disappear. And if you can't name and see a problem, are you ever going to work at addressing and fixing a problem? No. So when the conversation stops and the dialogue ends, the social construction dies out and we no longer have transphobia. And we know that's not true. We know that when advocates are not talking about it, it is still happening. But as far as the policymakers are concerned, as far as the news is concerned, Is it happening if we're not talking about it? So first thing we need to do, talk about it. Conversations. It's not just Pride Week or Pride Month in your area. You need to find all kinds of opportunities. When I'm teaching in my child and youth care class, I love using diverse examples. I ensure that in my PowerPoints and in my case studies, those names represent people from different cultures and different ethnicities. And that not every family I'm using as a sample has a heteronormative framework. Some of them have two moms. 
Some of them have a dad and another dad who is a transgender male. And maybe the focus of the case study is nothing around those identities. But again, they're just thrown in there to normalize. Maybe we're talking about substance abuse, right? But again, why couldn't one family we're talking about be a heteronormative framework? Why couldn't another one be a same-sex couple? Let's give equal visibility to people while we're looking at other options. Let's make sure that the conversation around 2SLGBTQ rights is not just happening at Pride Month. Let's find ways to tie it into what we're doing today and next week and next month as well. I think that also helps us to take what we call an intersectional approach. Intersectionality speaks to the unique social location or the unique identity that any one of us has. And we especially talk about intersectionality when we're highlighting the unique needs of high-risk individuals. For example, myself as a transgender woman, that's one road that I am on. But there are other identities that I have as well. And where those roads intersect with the transgender road represents my unique social location. This helps us to see the unique struggles of some people who might be a part of more than one marginalized community. As a transgender woman, I realize that I've had some struggles. I have faced transphobia, but there's a reason why I also had the courage to go to that counter-protest. As a Caucasian individual, and as a person from a middle socioeconomic status, As a person who still fits into a heterosexual presenting relationship with my husband, as a person who has parents and supportive family, I have a lot of other identity components that give me protection or that have given me unearned privileges or, you know, ease of of my life more so than other people. A friend of mine comes from a lower socioeconomic status they identify within the, the non-binary community, but they don't necessarily fit in that box of uh, someone who looks like a boy who is with someone who looks like a girl. They're not in that kind of presentation. They are also an African Nova Scotian. And as a result, their experience is very different than mine. Because in addition to facing transphobia, they have also faced racism for being Black. They have also faced discrimination for being from a lower socioeconomic status and being poor and not having this or not being able to do that with other people. There are unique stereotypes against a person who is black living in poverty as opposed to a person who is white living in poverty. And so this intersectional idea allows me to see and appreciate the unique challenges that some people are having by comparison to others. It allows me to be more actively empathetic. So where am I going with this? I want to teach everybody tuning in and listening today to be able to use that intersectional approach and recognize the diversity within the transgender community. Not every 2SLGBTQ individual is on the same path. Not everybody who is transitioning has the same start point and stop point for their journey. Not everybody needs the same supports. So if we're going to give everybody those unique tools, resources, the love, compassion, whatever it is that they need, we need to be able to genuinely and authentically see them for who they are, the lived experience they have, and that unique social location that their intersectional identity has provided them. Only then 
Can we truly try to join the right lobby groups, you know, vote for the right person, stand up and talk for it, educate about it in the classroom? We need to know these people before we can start being allies for these people. And I'm not just talking about people outside of the 2S. I'm talking about people in the community too. As a transgender woman, I have recognized that there have been times I have had my biases surrounding my own perspective and not realizing it. Sometimes I think that I know what people are going through because, well, I'm trans and I went through whatever. But again, that's, that's not the case. Each person is different. And when I came out and how I came out, who I came out to, the supports I did or didn't have, all those different components of my unique identity, that really shaped my experience. And it made it different than yours. And it made it different than a lot of other people's. So I think that regardless of what you're going to do, whether you're the protester, you're the educator, you're the ally, you're the friend, I think those two things are the biggest secrets to how we're going to move forward. I think those are things that all of us absolutely need to do. Now, beyond those two things, I would encourage everybody to look around in your backyard. Get to know different resources and supports that are out there and connect with them. You would be very surprised some of the different ones you might find when you take the time to look at it. Just this year, I learned of a new resource, for example, and I only learned about it because I've been trying to adopt this intersectional approach to provide better support for members of my community. That intersectional approach has led me to understand how important it is for me to develop more empathy and more connection to two spirit members within our 2SLGBTQ community. The reason why is because these members are at even higher risks for homicides, violent crimes, and other very challenging social barriers. As a result, I connected with the Wabanaki Two-Spirit Alliance, and I had the privilege of listening to Jesse Sabatis come in and give a guest presentation for my workplace, where I invited them to come in and educate us on the Wabanaki Two-Spirit Alliance. Tell us about your history. Tell us about your journey. Tell us about the challenges that colonialism imposed upon the Wabanaki people and how that affected your constructions of gender and identity and the trauma you experienced and where that brought your community today. As a result, what do two-spirit individuals in the Wabanaki community need? Those were things that I didn't necessarily understand, and I've been an ally for almost 20 years in this community. And this year, I gained those new insights and those new perspectives. So no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been doing diversity and inclusion work, whether you do it formally or informally, every single person out there has the opportunity to learn something new, connect with new organizations, connect with new charities and new service providers, and find improved ways to be an ally and a support agent. You've just got to learn to take those blinders off and see what's around you. For me, like, it started by having conversation. Like you said multiple times in this interview, we need people, people who don't know what transgender is, to go talk to someone, an ally of the community, someone that's trans, and to get to know them, to see that we are human beings like anyone else. And when we ask for certain rights, it's for our well-being, being in school, being healthcare, anything we need. That's the most important thing. 
sadly, there are some people that are really on an extreme that will be hard to change right now, but these people are a minority. What we need is what I say, the silent majority to go learn more about what transgender is and being an ally. And we need our ally also to start those conversations, be it in their sports team, in their workplace, in their group of friends, talk about what the trans community is facing right now and how it's not okay and how they can help us because we cannot do it at all. We need to have these conversations and give people the good information, not the information they see on Facebook and Instagram that is not good. We all know these platforms make money on disinformation and conspiracy theory. That's a fact. It's by having this conversation, civilized conversation, that we'll be able to bring change. Stop that transphobia. And everyone needs to stop. Look, like you said, at how they live, what are their privilege also? We need to stop. Like you said, as a trans woman, I'm Caucasian. That gives me some privilege versus someone that's of color, for example. Everyone needs to stop and to realize that systemic racism is a thing. Discrimination is a thing that's ingrained in us and we do without even noticing sometimes. But the good thing is we can always get better. We can always learn more be a better human and be more respectful of others. I'm hopeful for the future. I know we can get through this. We need to stick together, talk to people, and love each other. I think that's the most important thing. Bring love. Honestly, I think that's probably the best way, best way to leave it, right? The world just needs a little more love, a little more compassion, a little more understanding. And when those things come to the table, it's amazing the positive transformations that can happen. And uh, I think that's the happy piece of hope that we want to leave it on. Exactly. So a big thank you, Corey, for being on the podcast. I think it's going to be a great learning experience for everyone listening to the show. Thank you. It, it was really a pleasure coming. I hope everybody's enjoyed listening. And who knows, maybe I'll even have an opportunity to come and chat again. <laughs> I'm sure you'll probably be back. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you again, Audrey. You're welcome. I invite you to subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and to follow Trends with a Voice on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget that a society that is more inclusive to the transgender community is better for everyone. Thanks and see you next time.